And we'd like to welcome you back to Cross to Crowns podcast. Josh Copen and Doug Gooden. Uh, we are on the Twitter sphere. Doug is at Doug Gooden. Mine is at Josh Copen. And we again ask that you rate and review this podcast on the YouTube, on the iTunes, on the Google Play, on uh, I don't know what else we're all on. Now you keep saying iTunes. Is that still a thing? Yeah, well, I use it. All my at all my uh, podcasts. Yeah, but it's show- uh, it's. Apple podcasts Apple and podcasts, Apple music. I'm and sorry. But I think iTunes, man, you're like way back a year. At I least. know I'm, I keep, I'm uh, just, it's habit, you know, it's habit. What do you do? And you're younger than me. I expect you to be up on this stuff. You're like be. just 40, right? Right. But, uh, I'm not 40 yet. Don't, don't uh, add, see, see, I've got, uh, two, three months. So anyway, I was just scrolling through and uh, it still says, uh, it still says I podcast, I guess, or something. So Anyway, it's right next to my calculator. <laughs> I don't know what that has to do. With that. Uh, Doug is the uh, president of the New Covenant School of Theology in Colorado Springs and one of the pastor's elders. Uh, okay, I got to ask this question. We hear the term lead pastor, senior pastor, worship pastor, this pastor, that pastor. Now, if you're at a bigger church, I'm completely fine with it because if someone's the head of something and I get it. Like if someone's the youth pastor and they tend most of their time with the youth, it's like, yeah, we'll go talk to that person. I get it. But we hear it. I've seen it on the new covenant sites and several of the reform sites. Show me where in the Bible it says youth pastor. Show me where it says worship pastor. Show me where it says music director, women's director, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what's your approach to that? Do you care? Do you not care? Am I trying to, you know, cause a fight for no reason here with this topic? (laughs) Well, all right, let's jump in, huh? Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah there's certainly no uh, division of labor with those labels in the scripture. Pastor and elder, I believe, refer to the same office. So everyone who's called a pastor rightfully should be called elder or bishop. Uh, that's the other word. All three of these, pastor, elder, bishop, all refer to the same person, same office. And, uh, and if you're an elder, you should be called a pastor, that kind of thing. So at our church, at least, uh, we divide it this way. If you're a full-time elder, then we use the term pastor, not because we think it's in the Bible so much, but it's just really hard to cut against convention. I have tried this. Let's all, let's call all of us pastors or all of us elders. Uh, I think I jokingly said, let's call us all bishops and everyone hated that idea. But I said, all right, let's call all the elders pastors. And it just doesn't work. You get new people coming in from a different tradition and I'm the pastor, whatever. So, uh, so what we do is we say, if you're on staff, which is our, you know, if you're full-time elder, which uh, 1 Timothy 5 does speak to paying elders. And uh, so we call them pastors. And then some of us are given unique areas to focus on. So uh, the bottom line is on the elder board, when it comes to authority, all elders have exactly the same authority. I don't have any more power or authority in the church than any of the other elders do. But as far as what I'm called to do, I'm called to lead the staff. So one of the realities of the 21st century church at least in America, you're going to have a staff if you're any size at all. And there's things that have to get done. The, uh, the, the website has to be maintained. You, we've got facilities that have to be maintained, all those kind of things. And just the, the simple decision of whether or not to cancel a service because of snow. Uh, you don't want, you know, we have 13 elders. You don't want 13 guys casting a vote on whether or not to cancel the service uh, on Sunday. Because if you've ever been on a committee that big, you, you don't make the decision 
quickly, right? So that kind of stuff has been delegated to me as the lead pastor or senior pastor. I have the authority of the administrative aspects of the church, but I have no more authority than any other elder over the spiritual aspects of the church. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. I just, I think the example they used to use in college and high school and things, I'm a political science minor of why we're a public versus direct democracy was you ever try and get five people to pick a movie. Well, you can't do that anymore, right? There's no movie stores. So uh, that, that are, but yeah, you're right. It, it, yeah, I get it. And like I said, I have no problem with it, but there are some people like, what's a worship pastor? Like, you know what it is. You're just trying to pick a fight for the sake of picking a fight. There's certainly danger here. Uh, yeah. So we launched our first campus four and a half years ago, and uh, we actually sent out two full-time pastors to lead that and also three lay out, three, three not full-time elders. Um, and part of the reason we did that is uh, biblically, I think that's a good model, but also it does keep one person from becoming too influential. And we have two youth leaders who are not elders at the moment, um, instead of just one, because the youth group especially is prone to becoming a church within a church. And the kids look at their pastor, the youth pastor as their pastor and their Wednesday night youth group as the church service. And we want to avoid that. No, no, you're part of the whole church and Sunday morning gathering is important. Small group is important. We're just also going to have this other meeting time for you as, as youth, but we're trying to avoid at all cost. Well, not all costs, but at some costs, um, identifying one person as the, the main guy. So we have two leaders for our campus, two leaders for our youth, and that's going to be the model going forward. Uh, and I'm even open to having another guy join me uh, and sharing the preaching and leading in our in our first campus because I I, I don't like the uh, the idea of one guy having an inordinate amount of uh, influence. Yeah, and that can become a problem in the church. Um, John Reisinger wrote a really good article about. Um, he came out of the uh, Reformed Baptist community, and one of the problems in that community can be too much power, too much authority given mm-hmm. to one pastor, and it becomes. Uh, and his take is almost definition cult-like, and you've got yeah. to be careful when with that. And that's why plurality of elders is necessary. And I think that's why um, uh, when you come up in, in certain churches, I remember Jeff was saying, it's not my church. Now, Mike and Jeff and you, I think they understand. I think you understand when people say, oh, you go to Doug's church, whatever. It's not meant as a bad way, but Jeff's like, no, Jason's the elder, Paul's the elder also. Mike's like, Steve's the elder, Tim's the elder, Jack's the like. It's, you know, I think some, they really are trying to avoid the, I am not in charge. We have this group of elders who co-equal in, in power, if you will. So Absolutely. At the same time, we got to recognize that even Paul referred to James as the pillar. He t- said he was, you know, the reputed pillar of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, he had more influence than other leaders there. That, that's, that's clear. Uh, in fact, it wasn't until he spoke that the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15 wrapped up. Paul spoke, Barnabas had spoken, Peter had spoken, James speaks, and they make a decision. So it's not authority. I don't believe James had more authority, but he certainly had more influence. And here he wasn't even an apostle, but he clearly was a prominent leader in that church. And and that's okay, I think, biblically, so long as the leader understands I have influence, I have gifting, I have responsibilities given to me, but I must stop short of thinking I'm the boss, I'm the king, I'm the the leader, the the sole leader here, and the other elders have to carry their weight. 
and yeah. make sure they're exercising authority as well. So it, it's, it's all a matter of, are we all looking at this the same way and, and doing our responsibilities as opposed to somebody either being negligent or taking over? Well, it's sinful nature, human nature, whatever you want to call it. I think if people are drawn to you or drawn to that guy to go to him or what he's going to kind of feel uh, an even more sense of authority and power, right? Like, I think that's something pastors have to be careful of. And one of those things mm -hmm. is, especially if you're at a smaller church, uh, I don't know what that definition would be under hundred people, under 150 people, the majority of this uh, churches in this country are smaller churches is burnout for pastors, for people in ministry, because your job is people. Your job is a building, especially if you're at a smaller church, et cetera, et cetera. You have all these decisions and you're probably married and have kids. And what can they do to avoid burnout? It's three years. It's like the average time a person's a pastor from seminary to pastoring to out of ministry. And in many cases, sadly, out of the faith altogether. So what do we do to avoid that if you're thinking about getting into seminary? Yeah, burnout is a, is a big problem in, uh, in churches. That three-year stat I've heard most of my uh, pastoral ministry life. I think that probably includes denominations like um, Methodist and Lutheran, where they just show up and say, your time here is done and move you to another, another parish. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that's true of churches more like ours that, uh, that don't have that freedom to just move guys around, but it's still true. Guys are falling out of the ministry all the time. In our own district, in our denomination, you know, I have a front row seat to what what's happening and, and guys are tired. They're, they're worn out. All those things are true. I think uh, we as pastors have a responsibility to watch ourselves in that, you know, Paul admonished uh, Timothy, watch yourself and your doctrine. And I would include this in part of the watching yourself. And then I think the church has a responsibility to take care of the pastors as well. Um, on the personal side, we just have to make the decision to get rest and, and realize this is the Lord's church. It's not my church. I'm going to give an account uh, for the souls of the people in my church, but uh, it's still not my church. It's Jesus's church. He can take care of them. He's the chief shepherd. I'm an under shepherd. So that means I need to take a day and, and rest. Um, rest is not the same thing as idleness. We can go down that path at some point if you want to. Huge difference between rest and idleness. Uh, wasting time on social media and even movies and sports and things, that's not necessarily restful. It may be restful, but we need to have a biblical definition of rest, which is refreshing yourself for work. And that is not just sitting on the couch doing nothing. Uh, at least it's not always that. It shouldn't be always that. So real rest is important. And so to take time to rest, spending time with, with our family. I'm convinced that a, a significant amount of burnout is really guilt and negligent guilt for the negligence of a family. You know, pastors, if, if I'm not romancing my wife, dating my wife, being a good leader of my wife, spending time with my wife, and I'm abandoning my bride for the Lord's bride, that's not good. And I can quickly become guilty for that. And, and that weighs on me and everything I do in ministry. And you can get really, really tired in that. If I'm not, if my kids are a wreck, you know, if they're, if they're walking away from the Lord, if they're not, uh, if they're not good kids, I feel the weight of that as, as a dad. And that, that burns me out in ministry. So uh, I got to spend time with my wife and kids uh, and other things, that kind of thing. Then as far as the church goes, 
at least in our case, our, our congregation is very generous. Our pastors all get three month sabbaticals every three years. And I've been an advocate of that. I've gone to other church boards and said, here, let me persuade you and explain to you why this is so important for your pastor. You need to do this. Uh, knowing that that time is coming, I can endure the heavy seasons because I know rest is coming. I know relief is coming. Um, and it's humbling. Last time uh, I took a sabbatical, I came back a couple of weeks early uh, to a service. And uh, one guy gave it to me and said, oh, yeah, I forgot you were gone. <laughs> <laughs> which was both wonderful and humbling at the same time. Ah, these people don't need me. On the other hand, it's, yeah, they don't really need me. And that's good. Right. So those are some yeah. things that come to mind. That's a good thing. I don't know what the article was I read, but it, it was a, a good point that like the fear sometimes they have is they can never leave because the church will fall apart without them. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not a good sign of a healthy church. And it was kind of a good sign that, oh, they could move on without me was also the fear. Right. And so yeah. it was the either or. And um, I think you just mentioned that. And one of the things too about, you know, if you're considering going to seminary, uh, I never forget someone told me they got up their first, I don't know what you call it, convocation or chapel or whatever. And he goes, guess what? Some of you are going to find out you're not Christians while you're here. And and he was like, oh, my gosh. He said, sure enough, his best friend, like three years into it, got baptized, realized he wasn't a believer. And so that's why I would encourage people to get into a true, good local church seminary because if you're just taking classes and stuff and you're growing in head knowledge, which is great, it might not be enough for you to know. But if you're around, people who are going to convict you and love you and point you to truth, especially when you're struggling. I think that's why the seminary there is really good because you're I mean, you're almost required, not saying requiring like attendance or whatever, but you're going to be part of this church. You're going to be involved. You're going to do these things. And, and I think it's kind of a biblical model for bringing up pastors, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. We're we're men training men, like Paul tells Timothy in uh, in chapter two of Second uh, Timothy, um, and and yeah, you might find uh, some pastoral those in pastoral training realizing they're not Christians. And I'll tell you, pastors sometimes feel like, am I even a Christian? When we get to that burnout stage, when we get to that exhaustion stage, and getting some time away can be really refreshing for our souls. Um, and we want to train our students. Uh, to take that rest and to, and to make sure they're spending time with their wives and kids as they enter into ministry so that they don't get to the place where they're just going to collapse later on. Yeah. I know a few pastors who's battled some, uh, just depression or whatever, however you want to label it. Like they just felt like God had removed their grace from them and just, and you know, what brought them out wasn't just time. It was God's word. It was their wife mm -hmm. encouraging them in truth. It was, they were opening up God's word every day. And I remember this one guy saying he was reading through Ephesians and it just clicked. Oh, like you were saying that rest, like the rest was never away from God's word. The rest was never away from seeking truth. And I think that's important. That's a good reminder too. So it isn't just sitting out in your chaise lounge with your, you know, drink with your umbrella in it. It's real rest that's focused on Christ. So I think that's, that's a good reminder too. Um, so last week we talked about like a, a few controversial topics, like, what do we do with Hillsong and what do we do with the law, the Old Testament as new covenant people? How do we approach baptism um, in terms of, OK, I got baptized when I was seven. I made a profession of faith, but I kind of realized looking back, that was the stereotypical kid move in my church. Right. We sang some songs. We said some prayers. But now I realize here at 20, 30, 40, whatever. 
I wasn't saved. I am now. Should I get rebaptized? I get asked that question fairly often. Uh, that scenario is, is pretty common. Um, so I always ask that question, what did you think you were doing when you were baptized? And you, you know, if, if, if someone says what you just said, I don't think I got saved till I was 30. Why do you think that? Um, so I had one dear, dear woman saint who uh, came to me one day and she's like, I just, I need to be rebaptized. I said, why? Well, I just realized how much I've grown, how much I've learned, how much I didn't know when I was baptized. And I need that feeling again of the cleansing. I said, okay, but when you were baptized, did you believe the gospel? She said, yes. Do you have any reason to believe you weren't a Christian then? Was that genuine faith? She said, yes. I said, okay, you don't need to be baptized again. In fact, that would be wrong. You need to believe what that original baptize, baptism represents. It did wash you clean. You're, you're striving for a feeling. Well, that's going to be generated by the truth of what happened when you were younger. Your faith was real. You are forgiven. So no, you should not be baptized again. You need to believe your faith needs to grow in strength. If someone says, no, I'm convinced I, I didn't, I wasn't a believer. I just went forward because my friends did. Then you haven't been baptized at all. So it's not even rebaptism. You need to be baptized. So it all comes down to, and the only uh, comes down to what a person uh, believed why they were being baptized, what they believed about the gospel at the time. And the only person that can answer that is them. I can't answer that for them. So that's the question I ask. What did you think you were doing? And was your faith genuine so far as you can tell when you were baptized? Do you, as someone who might hold to the doctrines of grace, but grew up in a Presbyterian church, would, do you recognize infant baptism as someone was baptized? Um, no. And, no. Okay. They took a shower, not a bath. They okay. need a bath. <laughs> All right. And um, uh, is, do you offer communion to someone who hasn't been baptized? Um, we urge people not to take communion. We don't police it, but we urge them. We urge them not to give it to their children until their children are baptized. Because we see, I see baptism as the initiatory right into the, into Christ. What is the, the struggle of um, anyone who is, uh, struggling with new covenant theology ever when Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood, do this in remembrance of me. Why is um, communion such a struggle of Luther's view of looking back kind of Calvin's view of more looking forward to the family feast of Christ of us all coming together. Uh, can it be either or why is communion? And of course you have the Catholic view of transubstantiation. How do we, why is communion such a, I don't want to say it's completely controversial, but it is a little bit of a hot topic among Christians about what they're doing when they're taking the Lord's Supper. Sure. I don't know if the debate is so much about whether you're looking back or looking forward. It's both and there biblically. Uh, we remember, right? We're to remember that's the looking back and then we're to proclaim his death until he comes. That's looking forward. I, I think pretty much everybody would agree both of those are true. The, the debate comes because the reformers did not come away from the Catholic sacramental view. Uh, so the Lutherans believe that you're actually eating the, the body and blood of, of Christ, not the same way the Catholics, as you alluded to, transubstantiation. They believe that the, the elements actually, in their essence, transform the body of Christ. Luther said, no, Jesus is in with and under the elements. Um, 
but you're still uh, in a Lutheran church. The uh, the host they call it the, the the elements of communion are up on the altar, and when anybody goes up there, whether it's the pastor or the elders or whoever's going to dispense the, the the elements, they actually bow because the body of Jesus is up there on the altar. Well, that's a very different view than than we have. Our view is oh, it's bread and and juice. Um, so I don't bow before it because Jesus is not any more present with the bread than he is with me here in my room or you in your room right now. Uh, the Reformed view is one step removed from the Lutheran view that Jesus spiritually is with the elements. He's not there bodily, but he's there spiritually. But it's still significant. You're actually, when taken by faith, you are taking the, uh, you're, you're, you're experiencing the, the, the nourishing of Christ through the elements. And most of us who are not Lutheran or Reformed in that sense would say, no, none of that's true. The Bible doesn't go anywhere with that super spiritual thing going on. If I receive it by faith, my faith is strengthened because I'm remembering what he did and because I'm proclaiming his death until he comes. That's where the real rub comes. And, and the Reformed guys and Lutheran guys, they, they, they certainly dance along those lines of the, this, the communion itself doing something. And we would argue, no, the, the communion doesn't do anything. Faith does everything, and this is just a tool that the Lord has given us to strengthen our faith. So I, that seems to be where the biggest rub comes. Communion is such a such a heavy thing, and because uh, there are times where I'm sure I don't know if you've had this, so I won't project that onto you. But there are times where it feels like I don't deserve this; I shouldn't be taking it. But those are the days you probably need it the most. And then there are days where it's like I feel nothing. I'm worried about the kids. I'm worried about whatever. And you probably need it then too, to try and set your mind right. Um, it is interesting. Some churches do it every week. Some do it once a month. Some do it once a year. Um, I'm, I'm the more and more I study scripture. I think it should be regularly, whether it's every week, I don't know, but it certainly needs to be more than once a year. I, I don't understand. I guess the argument for that was it was Passover time and that's when they did it. So they would, do, I, I just, it's a really struggle for me if churches only do it once a year. Yeah, I agree. I grew up in church and we did it every week. And, uh, and I like that. Mm -hmm. um, we do it about monthly. We also encourage our small groups to do it regularly. Oh, wow. you know, we, we tend to think it's a, a Sunday morning thing, but it's not. The original context was in homes as church, as the Christians gathered together, uh, what they called love feasts and that kind of thing. So we do it as a whole body once a month. And then we encourage small groups to do it whenever they want to. And, uh, you know, there's nothing in the Bible that says there has to be a pastor or an elder there to, to oversee the distribution of the elements, that kind of thing. Just have a meal, whatever, and, and celebrate the Lord's death and resurrection. Well, I was going to ask, as an elder, someone who's very concerned about uh, strong elders and, and, and leadership, uh, police is the wrong term, but I'll say, it. how do you police that? How do you know that it is being done properly? Uh, I guess you have to trust the body and that you've trained your congregation up well. Yeah, again, there's nothing in the scripture that says there is a, a requirement for a church officer to be present when the Lord's Supper is taken. When Paul corrects the Corinthians for their abuse, he doesn't say, hey, you didn't have any elders there. You didn't have any pastors there. He just says, you guys are going about this all wrong. You're dividing over this. You you guys are, the rich guys are over in this one room getting drunk while the, the poor people are starving out here. And it's all a mess. But he doesn't say the problem with you guys is you don't have an elder there. 
Um, so, you know, policing it. Yeah, we teach and we lead by example and uh, we respond when people do it incorrectly. But that doesn't mean there has to be an elder present every time that it's done. It's not just a Catholic thing. I've been to weddings where communion's been offered. Where do you fall on the communion at, at weddings debate? Uh, it is not for a bride and groom. If you're going to serve it, you need to serve it to all the Christians in the room. Uh, I, I, as a pastor who does weddings all the time, I will not distribute communion just for the couple. Um, it is not a family thing. We don't have communion as a family unless there's another family, uh, it's for the church. It's not for individuals. It's not for a family. So um, yeah, I, that's where I come down on that. Okay, great. And uh, that, I think that's really clear and uh, it makes sense to me. And um, so you'd mentioned the, the kind of the take of Christ is there, the spirit's there, the, uh, the, the Bible verse about where two or more are gathered in my name, I will be there also. Uh, from what I understand or the way I've uh, grown up reading it. And again, my, my take is that it isn't necessarily talking about the spirit. It's, it's in the matter of church discipline. Uh, the context is in, in a church discipline passage. There's no break in the scripture there. There's no break in the original to sit there and go, well, he's moved on to another topic. Um, is that how you would hold that? Because as you said, if you're in Christ, the spirit's always with you. He's always there with you. So and Jesus promised to be with us always to the end of the age. So is that context solely dealing with church discipline? I think so. Yeah, it's clearly not dealing with the Lord's Supper. So we can't go there to deal with the Lord's Supper. And it's not mostly about prayer, even though you know the prayer is alluded to along the way. But yeah, it's church discipline, the keys of the kingdom kind of thing. Uh, it's a heavy burden. Uh, think about what he said to the apostles, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed on heaven. And if two or more of you together agree that this binding needs to take place or this loosing needs to take place, you have my authority. That's what he means by my presence is there. Not that he's physically or even spiritually there, but you have my authority when the two of you agree on this. That's, that's the context. As an elder, as a pastor, if someone comes to you and says, I'm struggling with this thing, this sin, this issue in my marriage or in my job, or like you mentioned earlier, pornography or whatever, I've got an idol in my life. It's, I sit down and I watched 28 hours of golf last weekend. Not saying that was me, but go Phil. Anyway, my question is something small. Can it be put under church discipline? Is something because we think about church discipline, we would think about adultery or abuse or I don't, I don't even know, but I, I, those are kind of the big ones. Does church discipline ever use for something small? I don't think so. Um, it seems both in Matthew eighteen and in First Corinthians chapter five uh, that the the sin needs to be egregious. Uh, it needs to be. Uh, along the lines of those things that render someone outside the kingdom. If they persist in this, it needs to be public where everybody knows about it, right? It's not Josh or Doug's private sin, but people have to know because, because one of the dangers, according to Paul, is this could cause others to go astray. So your sin, whatever you're committing, if it's just you, uh, if nobody else knows about it, then you're not going to lead other people astray at that point. If it's everybody can see it, everybody knows what you're doing, then you're getting into a danger there of that leaven, le leavening the whole loaf. Uh, I think it's got to be, you know, again, anti-gospel. 
It's got to be something that, that renders you out of the kingdom. It's got to be something that is widespread uh, in popularity and, and just and severe. It's the kind of thing that taking this to the extreme, you are excommunicated from the body if you persist and don't repent. Boy, I sure hope that uh, that lesser sins like not cherishing my wife enough doesn't render me kicked out of the church. So that's, that's the way I see it. Right. And uh, again, this is all stuff they can learn at the New Covenant School of Theology. Recommend you check it out. It's in Colorado Springs. And uh, acrosstocrown.org has all uh, a lot of takes on New Covenant theology and things. And hopefully someone's recording stuff uh, from the, the conference you were just at. Hopefully that's available to people from the, from the Bunyan Conference and, and they can hear it. You were there. Blake was there. A bunch of guys who uh, we would all hold up and, and esteem. So hopefully that's that's good. All right, Doug, anything else you want to add? I feel like that was a good podcast. Very informative, like just very. It was almost Fox News like in its like segment. <laughs> oh, not in, not in the you know what I mean, but they're just very like. All right. Next segment. Next segment. Next segment. Next segment. Well, it's all the host. It's all the yeah. host. You, you nailed it. All right. And uh, as always, people can uh, check you out at Cross the Crown dot uh, org um, and uh, Twitter you tweet you at Doug Gooden. They can tweet me at Josh Copen and email you if they have any questions and also rate review subscribe on the Apple podcast store. I don't know. Google Play and uh, YouTube are on there. Spotify, well. all those. Spotify, yeah. yeah. And uh, Doug, I like to end it. What what it's such a good encouragement. What should people do today and every day? Be intentionally Christ obsessed in all things. <laughs>